Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and my guest today is Associate Professor Alina Moravska, who is the Director of the Parenting and Family Support Centre at the University of Queensland. She's genuinely passionate about creating a world where children develop the skills, competencies, and confidence to adapt and thrive in an ever-changing world. Alina's research focuses on the central role of parents in influencing all aspects of children's development and parenting interventions as a way of understanding healthy development and a means for promoting positive family relationships as an early intervention tool for promoting lifelong health and well-being. She has published extensively in the field of parenting and family intervention and has received numerous grants to support her research. She has been recognized as Australia's top scholar in family studies and her knowledge of positive parenting is exciting to me as she is able to beautifully express the nuances of what contributes to good outcomes for both children and parents too. It was a pleasure speaking with Alina and I'm happy to be able to share this interview with you. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Alina, a big thank you for coming on to the program today. Thank you very much for having me. Look, being a, uh, a dad of two, I'm very excited to talk to you about parenting and you know, parenting strategies, uh, you know, parenting challenges, interventions. And I know that one of your passions is you know, looking at early intervention um, it excites me, you being an academic, uh, to be evidence-based in the work that we do. So I'm really keen to find out more about this space and, um, you know, what we can consider as, as uh, you know, parents, because it's a complex job, uh, you know, what we consider in, in uh, how to raise our children. Yeah, it's certainly an exciting journey for most parents, but it's also a challenging journey, I think. So lots of parents are... Uh, wanting information, asking about information, confused about the information that they're getting. And I don't think that makes the job of parenting any easier. And it's it's a job that's changed quite dramatically in the last few decades in terms of our valuing of it, in terms of how we see what the role entails, and even in terms of some of the logistics of, you know, how many children uh, we're having, when we're having those children, um, which all makes that job uh, just a bit more challenging and there's so many new issues that parents are having to face um you know around uh the you know the rise of screens the devices in our world uh the rise of the internet and social media and of course the, the kind of broader issues that cause anxiety for both children and parents in terms of the climate emergency the pandemic all of those sorts of things which uh, do create um, anxiety, as I said, and worry for both children and parents. And 
ask, you know, for parents, it's a question of, well, how do I, how do I manage that? How do I communicate with my children about these things? What do I do to help my child uh, develop the sorts of skills and competencies and resilience to manage those sorts of things in the future? It's, it's it's really a crazy space for parents. I I, I feel I know that when uh, I became a father, you know, just trying to understand parenting ideas around sleep, you know, just, just absolutely blew my mind. You know that every book had different ideas, and you know, and you know, you can't actually follow all of them. But you know, all of your friends have ideas. You know, your 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 parents also have ideas. It, there's just a thousand and one ideas. We're we're, we're flooded with uh, information, and you know, so much of it is you know easily accessible. You know, it's easily written up about. In actual fact, anyone can just say, "Oh, this is my idea," um, and I don't think the people are necessarily just putting it out there. It comes from a good place. You know, there's lots of books around sleep. But there's vast, vast differences, and and you know, I don't think we can necessarily find the right one either, which is probably one of the parental problems. We're all looking for what's the correct one. You know, we we want to raise our a little bundle of joy, the most precious thing in the world, in the right way, and that's probably the affliction of of being a, a modern parent that we're we're looking we're, we're wedded too much, we're fused so much with what's the best, what's right. I think it's one of the one of the changes that has occurred in parenting is this sort of more more emphasis, more focus, more concerted approach to parenting. Because we're often having fewer children, we do have more information uh, in many societies. We have more resources to raise children, and especially if we're having fewer children, we have more resources both in time and in money to devote to those children. Um, and so, and facing the sorts of pressures that we do as a society, there's this notion that you know we need to invest in these children a lot to make sure that they survive um, and hopefully thrive as well. And so it does put an incredible amount of pressure on parents to do the right thing. And this notion that if you just do the right thing, if you offer them the right types of uh, activities, if you do the right sorts of strategies with them, if you... Um, uh, you know, create the right sort of environment, they'll, they'll succeed. And, of course, there are things that parents can do. I mean, I wouldn't be in the parenting intervention field if I didn't didn't think that and if the evidence didn't tell us. Um, but there's only so much that parents can control. And it's also true to say that there is absolutely no one right or wrong way to raise children. Um, you know, a lot of it is very, you know, there are certainly evidence-based uh, approaches, strategies that are more effective, that are more positive for raising children. Um, but in terms of the mix of what you do with your individual child, uh, there's no one right or wrong way to do things. Um, and that does create uh, a sense of anxiety uh, where we want that that answer, you know, that, well, what do I do? You know, you're up there in the middle of the night at midnight, your baby's still crying and social media is telling you, 500 different ways to um, to approach that problem. And that's that's confusing, that's challenging, that's anxiety-provoking for parents. And so complex at every stage because you're, you're, you're only a parent to an adolescent when you become a parent to an adolescent. You've never gone through it. So every stage has the same old problems of, you know, how do you get this right? What should I expect? Is this normal? How do I support the most? You know, uh, it, it, it's confusing and... and um, you know, challenging with that sort of space that 
you're trying to do the right thing. And I, I noticed that you mentioned, you know, there's uh, only so much that parents can do. Um, uh, what do you mean by that? I, I know it's only a small little line from what you said, but it, it jumped out at me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, look, that's a really important point because I think we have to be very careful to make sure we don't uh, create a sense of blame on parents that ev- that they can control everything in their child's life, that everything they ma- do on a day-to-day basis matters incredibly towards the child's development. Um, so children are influenced in who they are by a whole range of different things. Obviously, there is who they're born, you know, the genetics. So a lot of what we give to our children is actually already there through, um, you know, through our genes and, and, and what we've, um, what we've uh, transmitted through, through that way. Um, there's obviously influences from other family members. There's influences from peers, especially as children get older. There's influences from teachers, from other educators, Uh, from social media, the internet, Um, all of those have a role to play in influencing children's development. So parenting is clearly important. Um, It plays a role and it depends on um, which area you look at. You know, some aspects of us are more genetically determined, others are more shaped by uh, by the environment. but I think, and I think that's the most important thing to, to keep in mind, that parents can influence uh, their children's outcomes. They, you know, there's research clearly demonstrating that what parents do matters. We know that evidence-based parenting interventions can shift children's parenting outcomes and can shift children's uh, outcomes. Um, but we can't fix or change everything through parenting. And I think we just have to be very, very careful that we don't create that sense of blame, that as a parent, you are to blame for everything, or you, you know you can take credit for everything, or that you can you can be blamed for for any problem that your child encounters, or that you can have a solution to every problem that your child encounters. Before we step into the influence part, those areas that we can you know assist with and guide and and and, and hopefully do so in a positive way, can you talk talk me through a little bit about the uh, areas that we can't you know well how much genetics plays in certain areas and and the like you know if, if we're going to understand like uh, uh where we shouldn't place blame on uh, you know what are those areas and is there any literature that tells us in a reasonable sense uh and this might be a bit a bit naive but general um ballpark like percentages you know and i know that this is probably an impossibility um uh but you know are we talking a significant amount is that a, a moderate amount is that a, and, um a little bit i mean we i know we have to always believe in both because that's well you know what research says and it's logical and it makes lots of sense but uh some things seem like they are quite significantly stable over time um unless you went you know really strange and odd and you you know put someone in some incredibly you know dire um intense intervention of you know whether it's trauma or harm or or or, you know huge behavioral change but even then you know you're probably the outcome's probably unknown you know at that that point because that hasn't been tested but can you give us a bit of a guide as to the areas um and 
how how much is you know out of that control or is kind of predetermined because of you know genetics and biology and so on evolution yeah, look, I mean, one way to, to think about this is, you know, what percentage parents add to the equation. And of course, as I said, parents add a big part to the equation because they give the child the gene. So in that way, you can say, ultimately, parents have, you know, incredible uh, responsibility there for who their child is. Um, but I, I think the better way to think about it is really to what extent do we know that specific aspects can be influenced by parenting, regardless of how much they're influenced um, by genes. And so, I mean, there are plenty of examples of uh, conditions that are, uh, you know, 100% genetically based, and yet the interventions for them are are actually environmental. Um, So as as an example, um, that is probably not so parenting related, although I have done work in this area, is um, PKU, phenylketonuria. It's um, uh, it's a genetic inherited metabolic condition. Uh, so it's 100% uh, genetic. Uh, children with this condition can't process certain amino acids. So it's it's, uh, it's tested for at, at birth uh, in Australia and has been for, for decades now. It has very significant uh, sequelae in terms of intellectual development for the child if it's not caught early and, uh, and treated appropriately. And essentially the child has to go um, on um, a diet that removes those amino acids uh, from their from their diet to ensure that those intellectual sequelae aren't there. So if you think about it, it's a genetic condition, 100% so, but the treatment is not genetic. The treatment is environmental. You change the child's diet to, to fix the condition or maybe not to fix the condition, but to le- make sure that there are no sequelae associated with that condition. And I guess if we think about parenting, it's the same sort of principle that there are parenting can be seen as an intervention that ameliorates some of the effects of different um, genes that we may, might uh, might have. And, you know, every kind of trait that we inherit is... Um, is on a continuum, right? So if you think about intelligence, for example, uh, I I think the evidence suggests that all of us are born with a particular continuum. We, we, you know, somewhere between X and Y, this is where our IQ will end up being. Uh, But depending on our environment, we might be at the top of that range or we might be at the bottom of that range. So that's where parenting then and the environment that they create for the child can make a difference. Not so much, they're not going to, take the child out of whatever that boundary that they were born with is, but they can shift their child's IQ through the environment that they provide towards the top or if the environment isn't um, particularly supportive, if it's not um, um, positive, if it doesn't have opportunities for learning, then the child might end up at the bottom of um, of of that range. But that range is predetermined. It's so interesting that the moment I take my psychologist hat off and I, you know, become the parent, the the questions that come out are, are you know, so different because obviously everything's about influence. You know, when, when I'm with my clients, uh, you know, I don't care how depression has come about, you know, whether there's a genetic nature or not, as I, I completely throw that in the bin because it's relevant to me. For, for me, it's about what do we do, but the moment I put my uh, uh, family hat on all, all of a sudden you know these these questions come out and, and that's what's so fascinating that the way that we behave as parents is very different than than how we do it as you know 
clinicians or academics and and, and the like. So really like that in in terms of looking at, you know, it makes no difference how much something has a genetic uh, factor because we only do we, we only focus on what we can actually uh, influence. And you know, in, in the case of PKU, you know, wonderful we can go out and screen and test at birth and do dietary changes for for um you know removing those amino acids and therefore mitigate against you know some intellectual disability or whatever it might might cause not that i know anything about pku but just summarizing uh, mm-hmm. what you say is is that is that also uh, uh, the kind of philosophy behind your work as well about saying irrespective of people's makeup at birth we're looking at what are the environmental factors that we can potentially facilitate to try and um, uh, create an environment that is nurturing to children thriving and developing, you know, resilience and skills and social connections and emotional regulation and so on and so forth, uh, whether that's from the beginning or whether it's after potentially a period of uh, uh, less favourable conditions that, you know, parents might try and mitigate or, or you know, put into a situation where children you know, have not had a good start to their life? Yeah, I mean, the work that I do is uh, primarily around development of parent and testing of parenting interventions, uh, especially the, the Triple P Positive Parenting Program. And it's founded on that assumption that um, in order for children to, to thrive and for parents to thrive as well, I think that's important. We need to look at both sides of the equation. Um, the more that we can encourage parents uh, or the the more that we can ensure that parents have access to evidence-based parenting information, that they have the supports they need, recognising that different parents have different needs. Some parents just need some information, uh, some facts, some strategies, some tips about how to um, use those strategies. Other parents might need much more intensive support around parenting but also around as- other aspects of um, of their own adjustment so it, you know everyone has different levels of support but I strongly believe that everyone every parent should have access to to evidence-based parenting information and ideally that starts early so that we can set up nurturing environments for children that are positive, where children develop good bonds and attachments with their their parents, where parents feel confident about uh, what they're doing uh, with their child, recognising that there will always be ups and downs. You know, some things will um, be, uh, you know, go well and be straightforward. Other things will be more complicated. So um, so recognising that, you know, focusing on parents' uh, capacity to, to feel confident, to build their skills right from the beginning is super important. And then to have strategies in place to manage some of those more difficult things, to know what to do when it's the middle of the night and you still haven't managed to get your baby to sleep and how to manage that positively uh, in a way that meets your baby's needs, but also that you look after yourself uh, as a parent. So the more that we can set up those nurturing environments early, the more likely we are to prevent problems in the parent-child relationship, the more likely we are to reduce um, the chances that children will develop difficulties with their behaviour or with their adjustment, um, and that then creates opportunities for, for more learning for and, and for thriving later down the track. And then, of course, there will be parents who discover 
everything went swimmingly during infancy. <laughs> may or may not be realistic, but you know, that happens for some uh, for some parents. And then suddenly their child hits toddlerhood, or they suddenly, you know, they discover that the transition to school is particularly uh, challenging. And so parents need support at those at those points in time. Um, because as you, you know, as I mentioned before, and, and you sort of highlighted, it's a journey. You go through each stage as a parent and you don't really know. You've heard from your friends, you've heard from your family, you've seen stuff on social media, but the actual experience is obviously very individual and very different for each parent. Um, and what you as a parent might need at those different stages um, can be quite different to, you know, to your friend, your neighbour, uh, other family members. And every every moment is so nuanced because every moment has its own history. It has its own personalities attached to it, whether it's the personalities of mum and dad, how they communicate between themselves, whether there's a united front or not, what their own personal belief systems are that they've grown up from, what they envisage for their children and how they think children should be raised obviously there's significant individual differences on a population basis uh, there's, there's so much nuance and and complexity in all of that something that uh, stood out for me from what you've just said is is the importance of the focus being on mum and dad uh, even though when we talk about parenting mums and dads are often thinking about the child mm. but i'm uh, feeling that this is in actual fact interventions for parents um, and you know almost like experiments right where where parents are open-minded and, and and look at how can I support my children best but that usually means how can I adapt change do things differently in an effort to influence create a different environment for my child to thrive um and use these as experiments to see if there's merit and value and if the feedback loop is is of, of use. Um, and maybe looking at what the actual mechanisms at play are. So, you know, what, what's the function of the mechanism rather than what's the intervention? Because sometimes, like, you know, the example might be, you know, maybe early on in life doing the naughty corner. You know, the, the naughty corner could be considered, the function could be that it's a punishment um, but in actual fact, from the child's perspective, it might be a positive reinforcement. Uh, and so, you know, understanding how the naughty corner uh, works um, is really important because at that point you can do the naughty corner function in infinite number of ways uh, that sends the correct functional um, message rather than doing it in a way that you know, potentially uh, uh, rewards the behavior you don't want to be rewarded and and and, and reinforced. So, um, am I capturing this that 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 uh, there's a decent focus on on parents without blaming parents? You know, going back to that first sort of um, side. Yes, absolutely. So I'll come back to the naughty corner or time out, as I would call it. Um, but in, in terms of the parents' role, I think, yes, I, I think we often forget that um, parents are central to children's development. Um, obviously, they're their most important caregiver in the first instance. Um, but unless as a parent you look after your own needs, it's very difficult 
to to look after the needs of your child. I mean, the, the classic example is when you're on an airplane, um, when they're telling you the emergency procedures, um, they always say, you know, take down your mask and then help your child. Well, it's the same principle in parenting. If you as a parent um, don't look after your own needs, if you're stressed, if you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're uh, experiencing depression, if you're in conflict with your partner, um, if you're confused about parenting or feeling very anxious about parenting or what, um, or, or lacking in self-confidence around that, that's going to be make, going to make it much harder for you to be patient, consistent, um, supportive of your child, um, and and to be calm and positive. Um, um, and, and so I think sometimes we, you know, we focus on children a lot and we forget about that important, really, really important aspect of self-care for parents. Um, and, you know, I alluded to at the beginning that notion of this concerted parenting and this real or cultivated parenting, this really focus on children and what we as parents do. What that often means is that parents spend so much time thinking about what they should do with their children, focusing on what they do, investing time in their child, um, whether they're with their child or not, and forget about themselves and forget. And, and then if they do something for themselves, they'll often feel guilty that they're taking that time out, that they're not spending that time with their child. Um, but I think that that self-care of parents is, is super important uh, and parents do need um, you know, to have time out for themselves, to have their own interests, to to have companionship and intimacy. All of that is and is, is an essential part of being a parent. It's so interesting because when we do look at the the way that we show up, you know, we are going to be uh, potentially much more functionally capable to provide all of those needs that we yearn for to give to our children if we go out and meet some of our own needs, you know, where when we feel fulfilled rather than frustrated, when we get outlets to have, whether it's socialization or following a hobby or sports or, um, you know, some creative endeavors, whatever it might be, the fact that that, you know, fills our cup, so, so, so to speak, means that we show up as a better parent or as a better partner, as a better communicator, you know, with all those attributes that say, you know, being patient and, consistent and you know positive and flexible and so on it's uh, it's, it's interesting that we, you can focus on just your own needs and become a better parent let me rephrase that not better um, you can be more effective in what you're trying to achieve um, for your children by purely looking after your own yearnings desires needs values um, without it actually being a direct you know spending time with your children as I said, I think that's such an important component that we often forget about and that parents often feel guilty about and that sense of guilt is often pervasive um, and, and gets in the way of engaging in those sorts of positive self-care type activities and then in engaging with um, with your child positively as well. It's a real hard one to, to not only explain to others, but it's definitely very hard to have that congruently feel right you know because that feeling as you say for for many parents is is a feeling of guilt you know if you're not spending time actively on your children it, it, it therefore you know creates a signal of guilt and and that's not congruent with the way that we want to parent and so it's a very hard thing for people to act incongruently but that still has value 
um, which is probably, you know, the, the challenge that we're having, you know, whether it's weight loss or, you know, eating well or whatever it might be is that, you know, we have to do things that are not congruent with the way that we feel. So if I feel like I want some more stimulation while I'm watching television or I feel like I'd snack on something that, you know, I feel like something that's very tasty, uh, even though it's not for nutritional reasons, it's hard to go against that feeling and do something that's incongruent with my emotions at the time, man, my, with, with, with my states, with that you know, compulsion, so to speak. So it's funny where this, the same mechanism is in play where to, to avoid guilt or to avoid sitting with discomfort of wanting something tasty, we, we, we follow that guilt and, and not do something for ourselves. Um, it's, it's, it's funny to see, kind of see that, but sometimes continue to repeat that. And I think that's why it's so particularly important to be really clear about, you know, how much parents can do and to ensure that as practitioners, as clinicians, as researchers, as policymakers, we're not sending messages of blame because it's very easy to fall into that trap and say, well, it's your fault. Yeah, you know, if only you had done X, Y or Z, your child would have ended up differently. But of course, you know, while research clearly tells us, you know, what we can influence in terms of children's behaviours or, you know, the extent to which we can influence some behaviours, for any one individual child, we can't make those conclusions. We can't infer that sort of causality um, in the individual uh, parent-child relationships. We can only talk broadly about what the evidence tells us about the value of positive parenting, the value of positive parent-child relationships and it's funny as well how we, as parents, we build narratives where, you know, if a child does well, we might attribute some of that to ourselves, but if they do something, you know, bad, we can either say, well, it wasn't on me, or we might actually take that on ourselves as, as well when, you know, in fact, you know, we've seen, you know, as many examples as you'd like to want to stick out of despite a child's or a human being's upbringing conditions uh, they have thrived. Um, you know, they've learned things from adversity and so on. And no one can pick that. One child can have adversity, and it causes them, you know, uh, difficulties throughout a lifetime. You know, another child can have adversity and say, "Well, that's what honed me. You know, that's what that made me resilient." So, you know, as parents, well, as clinicians, academics, we can't pick it on an individual basis. We can certainly say. I'm assuming um, I'm right here. We can certainly say these are not desirable conditions and on average they will create more uh, angst, difficulties, mental health difficulties, problems associated, you know, through through a lifetime if these conditions are around versus these are the uh, not ideal but more favourable conditions that that have a greater statistical probability of, of you know, adjustment and, and um, you know, social integrations and, 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 and the rest. Um, but it is funny how we do we do this uh, causal causation sort of thing, you know, the co correlation doesn't equal causation, but, you know, we, we continue to do it, don't we? Absolutely. I think as humans we're designed pretty much to to infer and, and, and you know, to, 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 to apply the averages to, to ourselves and to, to assume that because something's happened it must be associated with, with what we did or we didn't do, so... So talking purely from an averages base in terms of, you know, what are the types of conditions um, that are favourable? Um, and maybe we can look at the other side as well in terms of what are the conditions that don't have um, 
good you know prognoses attached to it or, or you know lesser um, before we go into interventions because I'm really uh, keen to hear about you know your research your work and and your colleagues about what are the sorts of things that uh, you know you've studied and even how you've set up those studies so that we can get a good appreciation of, of uh, you know what the evidence what the research tells us. So I guess in terms of the things that we know are important for children's development in terms of structure of their environment, I suppose, you know, the first thing is always relationships. Um, and so, you know, you said before about how some children will appear to thrive in adversity despite conditions of adversity. Often it is because they've, they do have those solid bonds and really positive relationships, whether it's with their parents or with somebody else. Um, so relationships, um, having that feeling of security is, is really, really important. Uh, and so that's about parents, uh, you know, in the first uh, months of life responding uh, sensitively to their baby, responding quickly to, to distress, um, meeting all of their basic needs, obviously, uh, and, you know, nurturing those, uh, those interactions, those communications. Uh, it's also about sharing affection um, with the baby and then the child. Uh, those, again, are really, really important. And as the child grows, it becomes, you know, how you show your love and how you show your um, affection changes. It's different for a baby to, to an adolescent. Uh, and I'm sure most parents will have encountered that period in their child's development where suddenly it's no longer cool to be seen with mum and dad, where you want to be dropped off a bit before the school gate so that no one sees you being kissed by any means. Um, I felt that pain <laughs> recently. I, I went to my daughter's assembly and one of my daughters, you know, was very happy to have a bit of a cuddle and a kiss, and the other one was shooing me away. And I was like, "Oh my god, my heart's breaking." <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the point is that um, you know it's going to happen to all of us. I've, I've certainly had those experiences with my own children too. Um, but what what it means is that the way that as a parent you share, show that affection, you uh, show that communication, you show that. Um, positive uh, kind of reward attention to the behaviours that, that you want to see, to the characteristics, the traits, the sorts of activities they're engaging that you want to see, that changes over development, but the principle around responding positively uh, to engaging with your child, to communicating, to sharing affection, to, to talking with your child, all of that is the same. And it translates into our adult relationships too. Um, if you think of a couple of relationships, it's the same principles. They just look different uh, when you're talking about a child versus um, an adult. The other sorts of things that are really important for children is um, a, a kind of sense of security and stability in their environment. Um, so having routines in place um, is, is important. Um, you know, children do thrive when they know, even though they might not, they might say they don't like it, um, they might, you know, push against it as they get older, but children do thrive on boundaries. It helps them to know what the expectations are. Um, parents being really clear about their expectations um, and knowing what's realistic is, is important as well. And, of course, having uh, sensitive, appropriate, positive, assertive ways to deal with difficult behaviour is hugely important as well. So avoiding any kind of harsh 
uh, punishment, whether that's physical punishment or whether that's emotional punishment, any form of kind of uh, put downs or emotional abuse, uh, we know is harmful to uh, to children. So having positive ways to to respond to children's um, difficult behaviour or, or challenging behaviour is is hugely important. Uh, so those really would be, I guess, in a nutshell, those positive relationships, nurturing those relationships having um, realistic expectations about uh, what to expect of our child and of ourselves and, and then having uh, an approach to, to discipline that's, that's really positive, consistent over time, that takes into account the child's developmental stage and needs is really important as well. And avoiding any forms of, of harsh uh, physical or emotional punishment. What Can you go into what... what uh... That means in terms of harsh, you know, physical or, or, or emotional. Um, you know, what obviously you know, we can all recognise what the extremes are, but what what are those sort of grey areas that parents might struggle with when when we think about you know what are harsh emotional um, you know, interventions, mm-hmm. or even what a harsh physical intervention might be, where we all know that you know significant physical violence. Everyone gets that. Um, well, most of us get that. Um, uh, but what, what are some of those challenging ones where, you know, there are cultural differences, there's, there, there's you know, ways that we've been raised as, as children obviously influences how we become or how we might do uh, parenting as well. So uh, what are the ones that we might wrestle with, struggle with that you've seen parents and maybe the literature talks about as well in, in terms of the difficult, more nuanced challenges that we might face? So I think it's, you know, one of the perhaps uh, controversies, I don't know whether, you know, from, from my perspective it's not a controversy because it's fairly clear, but in, in in popular culture, popular media, and perhaps in politics even, it is, um, you know, somewhat controversial, is the issue of smacking, for example. So we all, there's very clear evidence that, you know, any harsh physical punishment in the, in the context of, you know, where it, you know, uh, crosses the line into child abuse is definitely harmful, but the same effects have been st- found in, in research into terms of meta-analytic findings now, that smacking uh, just with a hand that doesn't leave a mark, which is the sort of thing that is legal in Australia, um, is, is just as harmful as, as what we might consider more harsh, more, more problematic. Uh, so in some ways, it doesn't matter to what extent um, that that punishment, that physical um, punishment is, is, is considered harsh. It's damaging to children's development no matter, no matter what. On the other hand, though, it is still legal um, in in Australia, and many parents still use it. Um, it's still endorsed um, by um, you know by kind of popular culture in some ways, and many parents don't see another way or alternative. And I think the and many parents will have been raised themselves having been smacked, and so they will see that is okay. They they turned out okay. So what's the what's the problem? Um, but the reality is that any kind of smacking is is potentially damaging uh, to children. Um, so you know. So that's hence what I meant about about the controversy. On one hand, it's used quite commonly in society. On the other hand, we know it's it's harmful to uh, to children. In terms of the sort of more emotional uh, side of things. Um, and, and, you know, that, what do we mean by harsh parenting? Well, harsh parenting can be anything from a parent 
raising their voice and yelling at their child, uh, swearing at their child, or using put-downs, you know, um, uh, saying things to their child that belitt belittle them or signal to them or explicitly tell them that they don't love them or, or so forth. And all of those can be equally damaging uh, or sometimes even more so than, than the physical abuse. So I think it's... um. You know, it's 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 very clear that any kind of harsh harsh parenting can be negative for children. Having said that, though, I would imagine um, that you probably will not find a parent on this planet who hasn't sometimes raised their voice at their at their children, who hasn't sometimes yelled. Um, because parenting is difficult, you're dealing with all sorts of things on a, you know, all sorts of challenging issues on a daily basis. You yourself might be experiencing stress as a parent and so forth. So it's not so much whether those kinds of behaviours occur occasionally, say raising your voice or yelling, um, but it's to what extent that is a consistent way of interacting uh, with your child. And parents can often, you know, get caught up in, again, more guilt around, oh, my goodness, I yelled at my child. I was so angry. I had a really bad day at work. Something happened. I yelled. And then I feel really, really bad about that. Well, if, if, if it's a one-off, uh, your child probably won't even remember. They probably won't even have registered it. And... Um, but if it's a consistent pattern, it's a consistent way of interacting with your child, that's when it's more likely to make a difference. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting to, to, to hear that uh, because it's so um, uh, I'm trying to find the right words um, uh, so strongly understood um that it, it, it it's one-sided you know it's kind of like a zero on all of that not that we're saying that all parents need to do a zero but i i see it as a, as a challenge in my mind um uh only because some of the you know when we look at kind of behavior change and maybe you know moral you know um acceptance of values and conversations they often have both positive and negative reinforcement schedules or uh you know and even how we do variable um uh rewards for things to be very sticky you know so that we learn them and it's interesting to to uh, uh hear it on this basis but in actual fact while i'm talking maybe what i'm not really understanding here is that you can still do positive and negative reinforcement in a calm way uh, uh versus that negative reinforcement requires frustration and 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 you know maybe raising your voice or whatever it might be in actual fact it's probably much more powerful and potent to give you know negative reinforcement in um you know like using the d word you know disappointed uh, you know that that can be so cutting um and you know should probably be considered when parents use that um either because it like, won't be useful if you use it too often um or it could be devastating if it's used in a particular context but uh that's probably where i was challenged by what you were saying uh that it's not that we can't do the negative reinforcement the punishments or the withdrawal of things but if we can if it can be done in a regulated Way. If the parent can be regulated while they're doing that, they're much more affective in terms of what they're delivering to the child and, you know, from a behavior change perspective. Have I got that? Because I've started on one 
uh, an ocean going, I'm struggling with this. I'm only here in the one side, but uh, hopefully I've got around um, if I'm understanding this okay. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think that's exactly the point that you, every parent needs strategies to deal with difficult behaviour because it will happen no matter what, right? Ideally, we want to put in place things to prevent behaviours from happening, you know, difficult behaviour from happening, and that's the best approach. But even no matter what you put in place, things are still going to happen and parents need strategies to, to manage those. So those strategies need to be um you know, effective, obviously, they ideally they're evidence-based and they're delivered by the parent in a way that's calm and consistent over time. So something like um, smacking, as I mentioned before, a lot of parents use it. And when you ask parents, most parents don't want to hit their kids, but often they just struggle to figure out what else they could do instead. Um, and you mentioned the naughty chair um, earlier. Um, and I said I, I would call I will call that timeout. Uh, essentially, you know, it depends on, on on which kind of program and and, and where, you know, where what what the wording is. But so timeout is essentially time away from the opportunity to earn reinforcement or rewards. Um, and it's it's one of those strategies that is evidence based. Uh, there's plenty of work um, demonstrating that it's that it's effective when used appropriately. On the other hand, there have been plenty of studies that have also there's been a study, there's been a couple of studies that have demonstrated that what parents actually do in their interpretation of what timeout actually is is not necessarily consistent with those evidence-based guidelines. And those evidence-based guidelines include things like making sure you stay calm as, as the parent and as the adult, so that you're giving your child a clear instruction about what they should be doing and then or should not be doing, uh, and then you're backing that up with time out in a, you know, quick, uh, um, you know, fairly quickly after you've given the instruction and the child hasn't followed that so that you're not falling into the trap of, um, of coercion. So it's very easy for a parent to say, well, stop hitting your brother, doing that calmly, and then it doesn't stop. Well, stop hitting your brother. And, you know, the more you have to repeat that kind of um, instruction, even though it's very clear, the more you repeat it, the more as a parent you're likely to get angry and irritated and upset and frustrated. Right? And so the idea with, um, with time out, as an example, is that you want the parent to have a sort of a clear-cut pathway through it. You give an instruction, your child doesn't follow that instruction, uh, you perhaps give one more and then you back it up with that consequence, whether that's time out or something else that's relevant in that context. But that short circuits that that escalation that can so readily happen uh, between parent and, and child, and then which can lead the parent into a situation of, of being more harsh than they want to be or potentially losing control um, and doing things that they don't actually want to engage with with their children, but they sort of inadvertently sort of, you know, go down that path. And is that part of what you also mentioned in terms of, you know, parents uh, uh, having not only, you know, solid bonds and security and stability for, for their children, but in terms of when we do boundaries that if a parent can provide strong boundaries, which means, you know, boundaries that a child can anticipate is going to occur, that at that point we start seeing that maybe the parent gets some confidence that, their word will be 
for lack of a better word, respected. Um, maybe more so is followed. Um, and, and and parents are trying to obviously organize their lives and get kids on you know to 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 events on time and so on. And so they would like their children to follow their 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 orders because they are orders at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, similarly. Children like to kind of know what is the boundary so that if a parent does say, stop hitting your brother, uh, that they kind of know that doesn't actually mean stop hitting your brother. But if they say it a second time with a uh, with an understanding of, or you'll be you know, asked to go to your room, that at that point they actually understand that the, that particular parent will follow through with that action. It's not like false words or empty words that that it will happen. So they can anticipate whether to take the gamble, um, which is, well, we'll see if mum or dad actually follow through, or I'm really confident they will because the last, you know, 15 of the 20 times they actually did follow through. Um, they didn't, didn't give me an additional warning after that. So they're probably solid on this. I get to at least choose whether I continue to hit my brother or not. Uh, is that what you mean? Yeah, so it's it's about parents being consequential. Um, you know, so if they're given instruction, they should follow, you know, they should back it up. And they should back it up either way. If the child follows the, that instruction to stop mm. hitting their brother or to Positive you know, put their socks on um, because we need to get out of the house, um, that they're, they're following that with uh, a consequence as well. And in this case, it's a reward, praise or attention or you know, a high five or something like that to let the child know that they've done the right thing. Um, and then if the child doesn't follow the instruction, again, being consequential in following through with an appropriate consequence. And as I mentioned before, it all goes back to prevention in many ways. Um, Ideally, the parent has set up things with the child in advance. So they've got household rules. Um, So the child knows what to expect, what what is and isn't appropriate in in our house. Uh, The parent is giving clear instructions uh, that are well-timed. Um, that are that are clear to the child in terms of what it is that the child is supposed to do. Uh, that the child, the parent is backing up those instructions when the follow the child follows through with positive attention and, and reinforcement. Um, that the parent has in place routines so that the child knows what to expect. Very different. Um, from the child's perspective, if you think about the morning routine, everybody needs to get out of the house to go to work, childcare, school, wherever everyone's going. Very different if the child has a clear kind of structure they need to follow. They know they get up, they get dressed, then we have breakfast, then this and that. So it doesn't matter what the sequence of events is, but that the child knows what that sequence of events is. Um, it's much easier for the child to follow that sequence of events and for the parent to follow that sequence of events rather than when there's chaos, when it's not clear what it is that we're supposed to do. It's, you know, sometimes we do this, sometimes we do another thing. So all having all of those sorts of things in place, routine, clear rules, reinforcement for positive um, behaviour, teaching skills to the child to be more independent. So, um, you know, something like that uh, morning routine, um, it goes more smoothly if the child can do things for themselves. Of course, that needs to be developmentally appropriate. But all of those things create an environment where it's less likely that there will be problems in the first place Um, so that the parent and child can get through that morning routine and out the door on time and everyone can be happy and positive um, and do what they need to do. 
that's that's what we'd be aiming for. And then the parent just needs to have a backup plan in case the child, you know, doesn't follow that instruction or doesn't cooperate with um, with whatever needs to uh, to to be done. Um, and, and you know, and and that's that backup, that being that, that having those positive, um, calm, firm, non-harsh uh, parenting approaches is really important. And I just want to go back to to your comment about you know. Um, instructions or commands or you know orders orders to children i think that's that's a you know really important in terms of thinking about what we're asking of our children um and i've done a lot of observations of parent child interactions over the years as part of a whole variety of different projects and what often surprised probably no longer surprises me but certainly in the early years what surprised me was just how many instructions parents are giving um so if you watch a parent and a child, say a parent and a toddler interacting, there'll be this of instructions, some vague, some specific. Uh, sometimes it'll be repeated over and over several times. And the way to think about it is that every time as a parent you give an instruction, that's an opportunity to follow, for the child to follow that instruction or not. Right. So the more you give and the less clear they are, uh, the more likely it is that some of those, at least your child won't follow. So a lot of the sort of prevention work is think is having parents think about when they're giving instructions. So timing them appropriately. You know, if your child is in the middle of a game and they just want to and you can see they're coming to an end or something like that, you might just time your instruction about dinner five minutes later rather than, um, you know, rather than interrupting that. Um, so a lot of, yeah, it's about timing, it's about context, it's about how instructions are phrased and how often they're repeated. Um, and, of course, we do have to give those instructions to children. We do have to function. Children have to learn to function in, in families uh, and they have to learn to function in societies. I've never thought of that, um, even though it's obviously blindly obvious to you. I've, I've absolutely never thought about the volume of instructions you know it makes sense to have you know clear instructions well-timed you know rules routines reinforcement both positive and negative bit of a backup plan but i've never thought about the volume you know of, of course children will not be able to follow an absolute myriad of instructions when we're i'm going to use this word because it all sometimes feels like that when we're barking out instructions just anywhere and everywhere like you know even if we think about our resources from a workplace you know if if, if someone is just given one instruction after another after another that you know seven plus or minus two your short-term memory just completely you know dissolves gets overwhelmed um uh, you know when we're doing that with kids especially when we're trying to hurry out the door the morning routine you know the after school routine they're getting them to to uh, you know, be prepared for dinner routine, the after dinner routine, the getting to bed routine, you know, the let's get you studying routine, let's get you organized for sport routine. All of these are, are, are high volume opportunities, those high volume scenarios of possible instructions. I I can certainly kind of just trying to reflect back, going, oh my goodness, like how how, how can kids actually achieve even a portion of these when when it's like you know pick that up go over there get ready for this and while they're doing half of it you're barking out more things like you know uh, all right dinner's coming up soon you know wash your hands or something and 
but you've just told them three minutes ago that they need to, I don't know, tidy up the room or something and probably said that four times. And it's it's, it's just instruction, 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 instruction. I haven't thought about that at all. That's huge. And I think it's important too to, you know, again, consider developmentally what children are capable of. So for some, you know, for us as adults, it's obvious, you know, you need to get yourself organised, you have to have dinner on the table, this, this and this. And, and we kind of keep that in our mind. It's part of our mental load that, that we carry. And we ascribe value to that, to have dinner on the table at a particular hour and get things, you know, get out of the house for that activity by, by the set time. Whereas for children, especially younger children, that is probably entirely irrelevant. You know, who cares when you have dinner if I'm not particularly hungry now? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I know I'm going to to that sporting thing, but really there's so, it's so much more interesting to, to do this, that you know, this game that I've just found or, you know, this thing that I'm just watching. So um, children have obviously have a much shorter um, kind of time lens in terms of their uh, what they're interested in um, and so and they often don't understand the value of this you know a lot of the the routines and things that we involve ourselves with as adults because they don't see the long-term consequences of that um, you know as, as, as an example in terms of the parenting uh, tasks that we that, that parents often have to manage that create problems is and where my research is in terms of interest is you know those those basic things like brushing your teeth, Um, uh, you know, if you've got medication, you've got to take, taking medication, Um, putting on sunscreen, putting on your hat, all of those sorts of things, which we know as adults have zero benefit right at this moment, right? Brushing your teeth isn't going to create any potential. I mean, it feels nice, I suppose. You, You kind of learn to associate, but it doesn't have any benefit in the here and now. The benefit is long term. Um, and we as adults can understand that and we can get into a re- routine of engaging in those basic sorts of health behaviours because we understand that and we value the positive outcome down the track, having healthy teeth, um, you know, reducing our risk of melanoma or melanoma or whatever it might be. But for kids, that's an entirely abstract concept. So to them, the parent is just trying to make them do something really boring and fairly pointless. Um, and no matter how much you tell them that, you know, down the track, this is going to make sure their teeth are healthy or they're going to grow up big and strong because they've eaten their vegetables or whatever else, it's still a fairly abstract concept that takes a lot of time to, um, you know, to take effect, to, to, to really for them to absorb that as a message. Especially when the association can't be built because it's a cognitive association uh, rather than a visceral association and hence why you know parents often will say if you do x i'll give you a food reward because we know that food has a strong visceral association um but you can't really you know say i'm gonna you're gonna get a little piece of chocolate for putting on your sunscreen because you'll be forever giving chocolates for everything and then not only that Kids will say, oh, I know how this game works. I'm only going to do things for the things that I want. Um, and you know, then you get satiation and all sorts of other problems that, that come with that. But, uh, yeah, yeah, long-term benefits are not something that kids can um, internalise. They're, they're, they're all uh, probably relationship relationship-based conversations uh, or, or actions, you know, will I partake in 
mum or dad's requests, instructions, um, uh, you know, desires, activities, or is something else interesting right now? Or am I feeling tired and I just don't want to do it because there's effort involved and I, I'm, I'm exhausted. And that's and that's where that environment, that, that kind of structure of the environment, that ecology around the child is so important. So, you know, there's so many different small elements that the parent can do to make it more likely that the child will engage with those tasks. So the modeling, for example, if if a parent, you know, let's let's if we talk about something like toothbrushing, if the parent models that they do it, that they engage with that activity, if they uh, create a situation where it's it's fun. You know, it's not just a boring task that you have to do, but there's something fun to it. And, you know, that doesn't have to be anything expensive. It doesn't have to be the latest gadgety toothbrush. Some kids are even scared of those, so that doesn't necessarily help. But, you know, singing a song or, um, you know, talking to the child while brushing their teeth. Um, It's about creating that routine. So it's done at a particular point in time in the child's day, in the child's routine, Uh, obviously rewarding the child for that. And certainly no harm in talking about the benefits, but just being aware that the child is not likely to be doing because they want healthy teeth when they're adults. They're just doing it because of they're getting that positive social attention um, in the here and now. So there's lots of small things that parents can do. It's not necessarily about big things and, you know, creating, um, you know, sort of major routines or anything like that, but thinking about some of those day-to-day interactions and how they might prompt the child to engage with something on on a daily basis. I'm mindful of there are, you know, uh, incredible, for example, apps that have capitalized on this in terms of, you know, songs for children to brush their teeth that obviously is very interesting and exciting and rewarding for them. And then naturally they also uh, lose their efficacy, um, you know, because who wants to listen to the same thing? It was interesting the first time um, or, you know, the first half a dozen times. What are some of the mechanisms that for, for parents uh, to think about in terms of how do we continually think about creating these environments uh, that uh, help kids to thrive that's ever evolving like you know the the toothbrushing scenario obviously you know at the beginning we do it completely for them but we might need to ask them to cooperate and to be available and open up their mouth and to actually even show up afterwards we want you know, them to do some of it themselves and then we do the other parts or that they should floss after they brush teeth and then you know we kind of negotiate that almost on a every single time basis um uh, to a point where you know they adopt it at some point um uh, or you know as you say might even develop a positive reinforcement around that over time but that's not likely to happen at age 12 um that, that that's much more likely to happen as a you know an older adolescent and or, or, or adult um what are the some of the things that we should start thinking about in terms of uh what's the glue around this is it is it that relationship is it is it these items that you're talking about about you know instructions that keep potentially changing the timing the 
rules, the conversations, the reinforcement? Is it a big soup of these things that we should continually think about um, to, to guide us? Because, you know, where you, we're just kind of picking off the shelf one item, you know, brushing teeth, but parents are doing an infinite number of items and they're infinitely evolving and, and changing and they're infinitely different for different kids, right? Because they've got different natural personalities right so one enjoys a particular activity the other one doesn't and then that can swap over in time as well um is, is that that sort of conversation about all those routines and conversations and backup plans and being uh, emotionally uh, uh, regulated yourself as a parent when you're trying to do these things you know stepping away sometimes yourself because if the fight's not worth the fight it, it's not going to add value and it might damage the relationship instead for example yeah yeah so i think you know that that, that soup as you, as you describe it is is exactly spot on so that having that context of that positive relationship having that open communication having those positive reinforcers in place for the child and having plans and routines and backup to to plans is all important and that happens at the micro level and at the macro level so it's at the micro level is like the toothbrushing and the interaction. Um, and then at the macro level of the day-to-day kind of um, environment or, um, or atmosphere uh, within the family, that's, that's, that's so important for families. And, you know, th- this is that point that we were saying at the beginning, that there's no one right or wrong way to raise a child. The, the individual ways that you engage with any one child are unique to the parent and are unique to the child and are probably going to be different for different children in the family too. Uh, what is rewarding and reinforcing to one child might be stupid and boring to another one. Um, you know, so it's it's for parents to think about, um, you know, having lots of different types of ways to, to reinforce their child, to encourage their child to engage in those things we want them to to engage with um, based on the knowledge and on that relationship they have with their child. And it's hard to figure out what your child wants or what your child prefers or what, uh, you know, presses their buttons in a positive way without having that that positive relationship with them. Can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about the research that you have done and, and what behaviours you have you know, looked at or interactions, engagements with, you know, between parents and children or even what parents have done themselves, like, you know, engaging in the um, positive parenting program and like what what are the research that you've uh, done over the years um, that, that sort of stands out or is applicable that we can think about, you know, how the research has been done and how it therefore informs the concepts um because because these are conceptual things for us to try and understand rather than rules you know it's not like parents should do x it's like no it's it, it's much more philosophical and 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 you know we need to consider the whole context and the timing and all those sorts of things but can you talk a little bit about your your um you know your research um anything in particular that stands out for you a lot of my, I mean, the toothbrushing example is pertinent because that's the sort of research that that I do do. And it's so the, the kind of research that I do is, is is very applied. So it's always thinking about how we can develop and test interventions, programs for parents that 
um, create, you know, help parents to create those environments for children that are really positive and effective in terms of the way parents use their strategies. So the research that I do focuses often around trying to understand what gets in the way of engaging in those positive behaviours, trying to break down, well, in that toothbrushing scenario, where are the particular points of intervention? Where do parents struggle in terms of implementing particular routines. And so we know with something like toothbrushing, but also a lot of the other health behaviours that we've looked at, like sunscreen use, like um, screen use um, and guidelines and so forth, what comes through in our research very consistently is that, you know, there's all sorts of other factors, but often it's just the child's resistance, the child just not wanting to do whatever it is that's stopping parents from you know, engaging with that particular routine or implementing that particular health behavioural routine in there um, with their child. So then if we know that, if we can identify that, then we look at ways in our interventions to say, well, what would you need to do differently? What are some aspects of parenting that we can um, encourage parents to do differently to, to shift some of those behaviours. And so the, I mean, the interventions that, that I develop um, are, you know, broadly speaking within the Triple P Positive Parenting Program. There are, you know, most of the work I've done is with parents of younger children. So things like encouraging those health behaviours, uh, encourage positive meal times, uh, for example. I've done several interventions, several trials now with parents of babies and trying to create a positive transition uh, to parenthood and dealing with some of those uh, so sleep um, behaviors or, or difficulties that parents might crying that parents might encounter that. And and so, but all of those, it's always about trying to understand the specific parenting context and the and the and the modifiable. Um, elements of that child's environment and of that parenting environment that we can tackle because we know there are some things we just can't change like genetics uh, we're embedded in a social context some of those things we can't change but what are the things within that parenting environment that we can that we can help parents to to do differently so the most common thing that comes comes up that you've heard is is that concept of the challenges that the child is resistant um, you know, which once again kind of places the focus on I need to change the child rather than, you know, let's look at the context of what the child might be resistant of, um, you know, and if we're asking them to do lots of boring things, uh, then even a you know an adult would do the same, particularly if you're asking a parent to do something boring that has, in their mind, no importance or gains because they don't care about the future outcome you know it's almost like telling someone to eat healthy when they are at the absolute end of their life and you know they're like it's not going to add value and they're like yeah, so just let me continue to smoke while i'm you know uh, uh in respite care mm-hmm. um or, or not respite the um uh end of life care yeah um you know and uh, for children, it might be very much like that because they just cannot associate the, the importance of, you know, oh, mum and dad say it's healthy to eat vegetables. Like, well, who cares? Um, that, that that health is a concept and I've got plenty of it in actual fact. You know, children don't have these, you know, generally speaking, the ailments um, or, or, you know, w- even worried to have that. That's what parents hold for them. Um, so the child is resistant is this constant uh, con- uh, common denominator 
um, that you're hearing. Are the interventions kind of psycho-ed type of intervention? Are they a um, uh, experiential interventions? How how do we uh, understand this? And, you know, if I go away from from, from this conversation, how can I start looking at um, considering my own behaviours as, as, you know, a central contextual feature for my children yeah so the the triple p positive program is, is based very much on a social learning approach it draws from cognitive behavioral principles um it is very skills um oriented so all of the interventions are really focused on increasing uh parents ability to engage uh in, in skillful parenting using strategies that are known to be effective and evidence-based and to really build up the parents' sense of confidence and sense of self-efficacy in their capacity uh, as a parent. There's also quite a significant focus on self-regulation so that that concept that you as an adult can, you know, manage all of the different things um, that you have to cope with on a day-to-day basis in a calm, patient, persistent, kind of thoughtful um, manner and have those skills to regulate your own behaviour so that you can help your child to learn to to regulate their their own behaviour. The other thing that um, is sort of unique about the program is it takes very much a public health approach so that... um, the you know it's really important for an individual child or an individual parent to have access to evidence-based parenting but it's also vitally important that the community that every parent has access to to that kind of information and so the you know the programs are delivered um, online in person uh, in groups over zoom um, increasingly these days uh, but they can also be very individually tailored uh, programs as well um, and triple p broadly is um, is available to all parents um, in australia it's supported by the commonwealth government the online version of the program is available to to parents of uh, zero to 12 year olds um, including parents of babies so so there's you know but it, but it is very much focused on on skill building and trying to help the parent to to really fine-tune those those effective aspects of positive parent of, of parenting and also those really important um, elements of self-care so parents are uh, it's one of the principles that's embedded within the program and parents will often be taught specific strategies based in a cognitive behavioral approach uh, around um, looking after themselves now i've i've had uh, matthew sanders on 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 the podcast as well what is it about the Triple P program that makes it stand out for you? I, I know that obviously you've looked at many interventions and lots of programs. You know, what, what is it that is at the heart of, of this that, you know, it probably shares with others? Um, uh, why, uh, why the Triple P program? Why these elements um, uh, that, that keep standing uh, out for you and, and obviously, you know, the research continually goes back to to these concepts, to, you know, versus you know, there are, there are other approaches out there as well as as I've said, you know, you get, there, there, there's just an absolute um, plethora of, of 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 ideas, and some that really come from you know very um, prominent people as well. Um, but for you, why why keep going back to the the the, the foundationary um, understandings of the Triple P program? So I think. 
what's probably important to note is that Triple P is only one of a number of similar programs in terms of taking that kind of social learning approach. And if you look at the evidence base, it's very, very clear that for dealing with any kind of behavioural difficulties with children with conduct problems uh, and, and any kind of externalising behaviours, those parenting approaches that are based on a social learning approach like Triple P uh, but there's many others, Incredibly Years programs, the uh, parent-child interactional therapy. They all have a similar basis in terms of our understanding of, you know, what contributes to effective parenting. Many of the strategies are very similar. We might have different labels for them, but essentially they're very similar. I mean, what's unique about Triple P, um, it has an incredibly wide evidence base. So it is, you know, uh, the, the most evidence-based program in the parenting intervention program in the world. But I think what makes it really unique is two things. First of all, it's got that self-regulatory framework so that we're always encouraging children, parents, clinicians, the practitioners who are delivering, and anyone within uh, using the system to really enhance and develop their, their self-regulatory skills. Because we think that's so important to day-to-day -day functioning, but also to change. That in order to change, you need to have effective self-regulatory skills. The other really unique thing about the program is that it's a population health approach. So that it blends universal and targeted approaches within the one parenting system. So it's not a program, it's not an individual program as such, it's a suite of evidence-based programs that fits within a system and ideally is delivered to a population systemically. So to enable that situation where parents have access to evidence-based parenting support at the level that they need. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, everybody, I think, needs and should have access to evidence-based parenting support, but not everyone has the same need. Some people just need a little bit of information. Some people need intensive one-on-one, -on -one, um, uh, you know, intervention therapy uh, around their parenting and other aspects of their life. So that's what's unique about Triple P, but it captures all of those elements. It has a unified message, which in an era of confusion and multiple uh, sources of information that are conflicting, I think can be very, can be very helpful um, to parents. Is it right to say, and I'm just wanting to check myself that I'm across the the, the the literature because I've spoken with so many parents in trying to book them in, you know, in our clinic here as well. Uh, is it right to say that there is a strong evidence base that goes out and says, uh, or at least, um, uh, 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 shows great benefit in uh, uh, therapeutic outcomes being significantly improved when for, for for children when parents are actually involved in the therapy themselves. So, for example, the more that a parent is engaged in communicating with the psychologist, involving themselves with understanding the needs of the child, working on how they can support that child, the more the time that we spend with, uh, as parents, with our, you know, children's clinicians, the better the therapeutic outcome is over the long term. So as much as we do see great evidence of, of you know, psychologists seeing children, uh, it should really be also considered as let's look at working with the family, you know, the context of the parents, because there's only so much that a parent can do, sorry, that a psychologist can do in 50 minutes with, uh, you know, a nine-year-old child versus having 
some time with a parent that can then obviously reinforce these things around whether it's boundaries or better communication or self-regulation and you know the myriad of other things that you've you know Mm -hmm. uh, raised as well is that valid um you know am i providing good uh, 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 advice to parents of saying, please come in, please engage, you know, be, be curious, work with psychologists without placing obviously blame on, on parents, but saying, you know, the, the uh, evidence says get involved. It, 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 it's, 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 you know, really beneficial for your, for your child. Yes, I would agree, but with a caveat. So please, I would please say I that can fix this. evidence around child externalizing um, difficulties, so behaviour problems, non-compliance, any kind of conduct, the evidence there is solidly for parenting interventions, not for interventions with the child. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that so in those Externalising, but yeah, okay. Yeah, so I would argue that in those situations, it should actually be primarily with the parent and the child may or may not be involved in some situation, depending on the context and what the needs are and so forth. Plus the age of the child matters as well. You know, clearly yes, the older yes. the child is and once you reach adolescence, uh, you know, it becomes much more of a dyadic kind of um, interaction. Sure. Um, but with younger children, any kind of behavioural externalising conduct type of things, the evidence is very clearly that parenting interventions like triple P, but others in, you know, with similar um, models, theoretical models, are, are the most effective thing to do. That Working with children is unlikely to fix the problem. Yes. Um, in other areas uh, that that psychology that you know that parents might be seeking psychological support for their child's anxiety or depression, um, there. It's, um, you know, the evidence is increasing that the more parents are involved, uh, the better the outcomes. And in fact, there are now some, there is some evidence that it's it's perhaps not quite as uh, as solid, but there is some evidence that even just interventions for parents around a child's anxiety are, you know, almost equivalent to child therapy, for example. Okay, so even not even having the child there, but giving the parent good information so that they can deliver the sort of same sorts of things to their child um, could be a way to go. Um, so if you know if your parent is struggling to get their child to attend or resisting in in therapy, that can be an, an appropriate alternative. Uh, but certainly, if the child is attending some sort of um, uh, therapy and receiving psychological help, absolutely having the parent involved. Is, is critical. Again, if you're going back to that anxiety um, uh, context. So a child will, you know, be sent away with homework to practice things. Um, the more the parent can reinforce, reward, encourage that practice, the more likely it is that the therapy is going to, to be beneficial. Um, the child might be asked to be engaged in, in exposure type um, work obviously in therapy, but also outside of therapy. And that may be something that the parent has to facilitate um, simply because the child can't get to those uh, exposure scenarios by themselves. So there's absolutely things that parents can do and should do to, to make it more likely that that therapy will be will be successful for the child. Wonderful, wonderful. I I, I think I've been saying the right thing because it, it's it's been based on, you know, that younger population of children, um, and, and really encouraging parents to 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 to, to be engaged. But it, look, it's also nice to know that parents alone, which you know we experience all the times, or that they come in uh, just looking for parenting support. 
that they're, they're, they're saying, you know, my child of, and you know, truth be told, it doesn't matter what age, it could be my child of 25 years old who's still at home, you know, that, that uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're having difficulties with, you know, how do we motivate them and they've lost purpose and direction and so on and so forth. That's not an uncommon story at all. Um, uh, Alina, where, 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 uh, where can we find out more? I mean, obviously this, this is, some, this is your bread and butter. You know, I think the nuances that you bring to this conversation and, and your language is is you know, just beautiful to hear. Um, I can see this a great value for all of us to learn, um, you know, because so much of this is is uh, not necessarily uh, uh, straightforward. It's 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 a cultivating i like is that word that we used earlier we're cultivating best practices we're cultivating an understanding of ourselves we're cultivating an understanding of our children and looking at functions and you know working on ourselves immensely because you know emotional regulation is a you know it's a lifelong journey for 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 all of us um uh, where can we find out more and where can we find out about you know your work what's the resources out there if we want to follow up from this conversation yeah, so if um, I, I guess there's two arms. So one is the the research arm. So the research arm, um, I'm based at the Parenting and Family Support Centre at the University of Queensland. So um, if, if anyone's interested in, in following up on research, accessing our website, um, there would probably be the, the best avenue. Um, and then if someone is interested more in the parent support component, you know, how do I access something like Triple P? Um, there, then access then you know, simply if you Google Triple P, you'll end up at uh, at the at the Triple P parenting website with with links to all of the different uh, intervention options as well. Uh, and Triple P is available obviously for free to all parents in Australia uh, on the online program, but it's also disseminated around the world in, in many languages. So no matter where somebody is, they 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 hopefully will be able to find and, and access it as well. Do you say that the Triple P program is free to parents in Australia? It is the online. Wow. Online. Um, the online. Yeah, yeah. Um, Triple P for baby and Fearless Triple P, which is for parents um, with with kids with anxiety, are all available for free, supported by the Commonwealth Government um, to uh, to Australian parents. A shout out to the Commonwealth uh, for for you know and government for going out and supporting something that's so in need. I think we need to get this message out there. Why I didn't actually know myself. Um, I thought you had to, you know, visit universities around Australia to to you know partake in those or or you know the clinics that do so. But uh, that that that's amazing because it's a good you know from from an accessibility point of view to do things online that parents can actually read that they know is evidence based. You know, is 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 phenomenal. Um, yeah, wow, great. Yeah, so I mean, in in terms of triple P, each state also has different levels of support. So, for example, the Queensland government um, does support um, access to to broad, a broader range of triple P uh, programs in terms of individual and group versions of the program as well. That differs depending on the state. So, if um, if you Google triple P, you'll get to the main triple P website, and then that has information about what's accessible in in different parts of the different parts of the country and in different parts of the world as well. And it sounds like any, you know, uh, up-and-coming psychologist in training, um, you know, certainly think about UQ as a place to study, you know, from from a perspective of if you're interested in parenting and, and doing that sort of work. Um, I'm assuming you probably supervise uh, plenty of students your, 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 yourself. Yes, 
Yeah, so as I mean, as I mentioned, at, at the Parenting and Family Support Centre at UQ, we're doing the research in terms of developing the interventions, but we do a lot of the work in trying to understand different aspects of parenting in order to develop those, those parenting interventions. So it's not just kind of, you know, developing a triple P intervention and then testing and making sure that it works, but there's a lot of work that goes around that to, to try to understand the basic dynamics, the basic mechanisms. Um, so, yes, we have a range of PhD students from all over the world who are, who are researching different aspects um, of parenting and parenting intervention and dissemination and engagement of parents so there's always plenty of opportunities and plenty of research projects to, um, to do. So we certainly welcome any inquiries and um, people who would be interested in doing research and collaborating with us. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Shalina. I, I appreciate you and, and, and your work and, and your devotion to, to yeah, research and the scientific method. You know, clearly this, this, you know, passion of, of, of yours oozes out your your understanding of this is 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 inspiring i think it you know for me at least it makes me invigorated and excited again to to think about myself how i show up as a as a father for my children um and not in a judgmental way but an excited way of saying wow i think i can walk in today and and meet my children again a little bit different and and you know even if it slips through my hands again i you know, revert back to some old habits, coming back to, you know, this conversation or, you know, these types of conversations must have a positive effect on on how I am as a father. And and I'd encourage others to to you know listen to podcasts like this and, you know, find more information from from your research and the Triple P program and, and others as well that, you know, it's evidence based. So thank you. I appreciate you so much. And um uh, uh, yeah, look forward to maybe having you back on the show at some some point uh, to discuss the you know most latest developments in in your work. Lovely, thank you so much for having me on the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you